I'm on now. Great. It's good to be here. Um, yeah, just to echo what the words that Dan said, actually, um, we're part of a, we're friends with the, the Tabar Network of Churches, which is connected to 24-7 prayer. And uh, for many, many Thursdays during COVID in the last two years, I've been on a Zoom call with pastors and leaders from the churches in Northern Ireland. And at the moment, we're going through the reframing the prophetic course as pastors. So those that are just, um, you know, leading teams and leading churches to learn about that gift. And so I really do actually highly recommend it. And and Gillian has been a real champion for it here. Um, We've seen the prophetic gift misused and abused in all sorts of ways. But the prophetic gift and the prophetic imagination is the very heart of what the church is about. And so if it just sparks interest in you, let me really encourage you to speak to Gillian or speak to Dan or myself. We'd love to get you connected to that course. And uh, even if you've never experienced that or done it before, you just want to learn about it, um, Christine and the team that they have there in the course they've put together is really Jesus-centered, really, really rooted and anchored. I, I really, really think it's great stuff. So we plug. Thanks also to Fra for stepping in today and leading worship, um, beautifully led. And um, We've been rejigging our uh, preaching a little bit this week due to some illness and stuff, so I wasn't intending to be up today, but Fra stepped in to lead worship and I've been able to be released to do this this morning. So before we jump into the parable that we're going to look at today, and we're going to have some discussion after it, um, <clears throat> I suppose just to say uh, our, our senior leadership team here, as you maybe have known from some emails and some conversations we've had, have been I've been gathering just to continue to discern really where we're at as a church and what, what the future holds for us. And we're hoping that 2022 is a, is a year where we begin to really move out of this, this funk that we've all been in for two years. And um, we had a day away at the end of January. And so I have no news other than just to say in early March sometime we're going to be gathering all of you together for another one of our community conversation nights. And that's hopefully going to be a really exciting night to talk about and the steps forward that we want to go, some vision for the future, and so um, keep your eyes peeled for communication about that. But that is coming up, and um, yeah, so keep your eyes peeled for that. And the next few weeks, we'll be pushing out a date uh, for that. Hopefully, maybe um, here we'll be able to host it if it's nice and warm. Um, okay, parables of Jesus. Um, open your Bible apps. There is going to be a passage on the screen behind me, or if you've got a, B- a Bible in front of you, there's some Bibles on the tables. We've started this series, and it's really a month-long series called The Parables of Jesus. And um, so a parable is this small story with a large point. And Jesus loved to tell parables. It's one of his most uh, favorite forms of communication. These casual stories about seed and about soil and about farmers and about merchants and about builders and bandits and victims... And rarely do they ever actually mention God. And so on first listening, they don't seem all that disruptive or alarming. They're not necessarily disturbing the status quo. And people's defenses are relaxed. The listeners' defenses are relaxed. And they would listen to these stories and absorb them. And often leave a bit perplexed, a bit bored maybe, or a bit confused. But they would have listened to them. And yet that's the very point of the parables and why Jesus used them. Because the listener absorbs these stories into their imagination. And those stories are like little time bombs inside the heart and the mind that at some point will go off and the penny will drop. Jesus actually was speaking about God in those stories. He was speaking about the life 
of the kingdom. And so they get past the, the guarded lines and boundaries that we put up and the story has this life to it. So as we come back again and again to these parables too, they often have different things to say to us. Frederick Buchner, he says that with parables and jokes, both, if you've got to explain them, don't bother. <laughs> That's the thing about parables. They, they, they don't necessarily have clarity. They just have, they're multidimensioned. It's like a piece of art. As I said last week, when we come to a piece of art, often it says more about us, the observer, than it does have some kind of objective, intrinsic meaning. And it reflects in a sense, draws us out of ourselves or <clears throat> helps us to think <clears throat> or reflect, excuse me, examine life, or sometimes we can see ourselves or see our stories in a piece of art or in a movie or in a poem. You know, we can find ourselves in that story and it speaks to us. Um, a straight answer or an explanation kind of just short circuits that process, just short circuits. It kind of kills the wonder. And so that's why I think Jesus speaks in parables. You would think he would want to speak with clarification, with clarity, wouldn't you? Because he's all about the truth after all. But Emily Dickinson's quote really speaks well to this when she says, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. And that's what Jesus is doing in parables. He's all about the truth. He's not playing games. He's not messing about. Although parables can be playful in their nature and in their form and the stories are interesting, there's some deep meaning and truth in there that, as I say, can expose all sorts of things about us and also describe what God is up to in the world and what the kingdom of God actually looks like. When they get under our skin, they can speak to us. And so here's the question again this week I want you to ask yourself as we look at the parable this week, which is this, where do you find yourself in the story? That's the question I want you to ask this morning. Where do I locate myself in this parable? Where, where do I find myself? So let's read today's parable. It's a really short one. It's in Luke 13, 1 to 9. Um, here goes. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. At that very time, there were some pres present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting this soil? He replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What a strange parable that I've chosen for today. <laughs> I think it's an exciting one though. So strap in. I'd love you to engage with it. Because it struck me. I think it has something for us personally and maybe even collectively. I'm going to try and be quick, but maybe slightly longer this morning. Because I think we want to we understand what Jesus is talking about in that first part before we get to the fig tree. So let's talk about that. And as I say, when we get to the fig tree, remember to ask yourself the question, where do you find yourself in the story? 
So maybe you've been listening to the news lately. Maybe you've all got an opinion on Whoopi Goldberg or Joe Rogan v. Spotify or uh, Russia invading Ukraine or the DUP pulling down Stormont or Boris and Partygate or COVID-related stories, the good, the bad, and the ugly of that. Maybe you've got an opinion. Maybe that's what's in the air at the moment. Well, in a sense, this is what happens in this passage. The parable begins with people pulling headlines of things that are happening around and talking to Jesus about them. News headlines of what's really happening in Jerusalem, in Roman-occupied Jerusalem. The chatter, what's your opinion? What's your take? What's your hot take? And here's the two harrowing, well, they're actually catastrophes. They're sad stories that people bring to Jesus. The first is this recent news that some Galilean peasants had been massacred while worshiping at the temple. State-sanctioned terror. This is a tragedy, a catastrophe. Not unlike occupying forces coming into a church, for example, and killing worshipers on Christmas Day. At one of the Jewish festivals, the Galilean peasants massacred by the hand of Pilate. We hear about things like that happening all around the world today. Great catastrophes like that, religious places and all sorts of massacres happening. The other headline in this story that they bring to Jesus is about falling buildings in Siloam, which is a small area south of the temple in Jerusalem. A tower had collapsed and killed 18 people. A great tragedy again. A catastrophe, not unlike things that happen in our world today. Catastrophes like pandemics and falling buildings and death and war. But this one, of course, causing injury or death, this one really reminds us just how fragile life is because this was accidental. How are these stories connected and how do they connect to the parable about the fig tree and where are we going today, you might be wondering. Here's some background information to help us. Pontius Pilate was not a nice person person. He was an unpleasant and unpopular governor of Judea. And N.T. Wright says, if the New Testament had never existed, we would still know that Pontius Pilate was not a nice person. Because the Jewish historian Josephus lists all the things that he would do to upset and irritate the Jewish people. He is the representative of the empire in Judea and in Jerusalem. One example was that Pilate, being so unpopular, wanted to win political points by building an aqueduct to bring in water in and out of Jerusalem, which is kind of a good idea, but guess what? He didn't want to fund it using Roman, Emperor, Roman Empire money. He used temple money. He took money from the temple treasury and spent it on this infrastructure for his own political gain. Those were supposed to be used for the temple. Of course, that was controversial among the Jewish people, and there were uprisings and many different opinions and hot takes on how you should live within an empire like that. And then Pilate, of course, would have to squash the uprisings. That's what happened with the Galilean peasants. There was an uprising, and Pilate had to send in the troops to squash, to squash it. This is the kind of conundrum when you're in an occupied territory and we see it around the world. Do you appease the tyrant and just get on keeping it a happy life? Or do you rise up and that causes strife? And that goes back and forth and back and forth. And in this instant, the Galilean pilgrims, they protested. And as I said, Pilate sends in the troops to control the situation. Violence ensues. And here we have in the passage, it says the Galileans were killed and their blood mingled with the blood of the sacrifices. 
So the sacrifices made at the temple, the blood of these Galileans mixed in with the blood of the sacrifices in the temple. That's what is being spoken of at the start of Luke. And some would have the hot take that that was God's justice because they should cooperate with the empire. For those who incite violence, that was God's justice. They had provoked the tyrant and got their dues. And so when they bring up the story, here's how Jesus responds to that headline. Jesus asked them, do you think that these Galileans suffered in this way because they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. So the headline from Jesus is, no, they're not worse sinners, but if you go that same direction, you too will perish. Strong words from Jesus. Let's move on to the Tower of Siloam, because Jesus is not done. The tragedy of the collapsed tower kills 18 people. It's really interesting background that the 18 people quite possibly were actually working on the very infrastructure of the aqueduct. These were people cooperating with the emperor's project. These 18 people had decided to cooperate with the oppressing forces to work on a big infrastructure project is for the good of all. Even though it was controversial, even though their friends might have had an opinion on them, they decided to get to work. Take the heat. They made those decisions, and I guess those are the kinds of decisions, as I said, you make. Do you rise up against, or do you work alongside? And so when they die, the hot take from people around was, no, that's God's justice because they were complicit with the empire. They were complicit with the empire. And so what's Jesus' take on that? Jesus says this, of those 18 who were killed when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? And Jesus says this, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Were these people worse than the others? No, but again, repent or you will go that same direction. It's important to understand the phrase just as they did. Some translations would say, you two will perish in the same way. And this is key because Jesus is not talking about what happens when someone dies. Jesus is not, you know, we could read this and suppose this is kind of a warning about you're gonna, if you don't follow uh, if you don't do the right thing or follow the right way, you'll end up perishing in hell, something like that. You might, you, might, you might suppose that's what the warning is about, and it's not. It's totally wrong. In line with the warnings that Jesus had issued several times, and he'll continue to up until his crucifixion, Jesus is basically making it clear that those who refuse to change direction, that's what repent means, those who refuse to change direction, to abandon the crazy flight into rebellion, against Rome, they'll suffer the consequences. I guess you could sum it up as, those who take the sword will die by the sword. In fact, Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, leaves us in no doubt that when the Jerusalem uh, fell in AD 70, it was a direct result of people not choosing to follow Jesus' way, of choosing to, not choosing the way of peace, but choosing the way to fight, and, and, and Jerusalem collapsed in AD 70. So this is kind of a warning that Jesus has given. But let's go back to this, the, the, the two stories in this dark question. A bit like in John 9. You might remember there's a story in John 9 where there's a man that's born blind and the disciples say, 
Who sinned? Was it the man or was it his parents? And of course, Jesus said neither of them. Who's right? The Galilean peasants who up, did the uprising or the workers who were cooperating with the emperor? Who's right? Who's wrong? It's the same kind of question and there's a darkness behind those questions. Something bad has happened. Something bad has happened and we're talking about it to an individual or to a group or to a nation. And our human propensity, our, our human propensity is to jump to like a hot take and to, and to ask the question, whose fault is it? Who's to blame for that? It's the desire to find an explanation because it ensures that perhaps it won't happen to us. It consoles us to know the reasons why something happened. It consoles our own anxieties and fears to be able to find the blame, to be able to find the scapegoat. We do this. Like the parable last week, you remember in the parable of the prodigal son, I talked about the shaming ritual that the village would have done to the prodigal son. A bit like that, we might think that this kind of thinking is primitive scapegoating and blaming others, that it's nothing to do with us, and yet I think it's absolutely to do with us, and I think we would be living in denial if we did not think that we want to know answers for why things happen. We want to know who's to blame. We do the same thing. This bad thing has happened because these people are clearly bad people. One plus one equals two. Bad things happen to bad people. And to ensure that it doesn't happen to us, we come up with a system of thinking to explain why they deserve it. Because if bad things could happen to those who don't deserve it, then goodness, it could happen to me. <laughs> and so there's a system we come up with, and we don't want that. We come up with a system to blame the sufferer for their own suffering. That's what the book of Job is all about. But to blame the victim is the work of Satan. And it's the story of history. We want to believe that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, but the truth is that bad things happen to the best people. Bad things happen to the best people and the worst things happen to the very best people. Look at Christ himself. He went to the cross. You know what this thinking can lead to? The story we tell ourselves. It turns to the kind of thinking where we blame ourselves for our own struggles. We can turn it inwards. We blame ourselves for our own suffering, our own catastrophes. In the midst of our pain, our vision goes dim and we ruminate and we wonder, if only I was a better person, this bad thing would not have happened. And we beat ourselves up in guilt and in shame and we get trapped in that kind of thinking. Maybe you would not have got cancer or depression if you'd just been a more grateful person. Maybe your kid wouldn't have rebelled if you were a better parent. Maybe you would have avoided that addiction if you just listened better. This kind of thinking gives the illusion of an explanation for but a moment. But it's not true, and it traps us in shame traps us in judgment, judgment of others and judgment of ourselves. And so Jesus is tackling this kind of thinking, the kind of thinking that catastrophes or suffering or bad things are some kind of punishment or response from God for our mess up. Jesus is under 
writing that whole thing, subverting it with his answers in this story. God did not bless the murder of the Galilean peasants in the temple, and he did not bless the collapsing of the tower in Siloam. He does not punish people for particular, that's not the God is revealed in Christ. And this is what Christ is coming to reveal to us is the heart of God, the Father. Does, does sin have consequences? Of course, if we treat people badly or we treat our climate badly, there will be consequences. If we sow seeds of hatred, we will reap what we sow. Of course that happens, but does God cause them? Does God use them to teach us? Yes, but does God cause them? No, of course he does not. This is not how God behaves, and this is what Jesus is trying to highlight. And what Jesus highlights in this passage is this, the importance of repentance. The importance of repentance. This is a big religious word, which means to rethink, to change our minds, to change our direction, to repent of this kind of stinking thinking, to repent of that, has us asking all the wrong questions, like who's to blame and whose fault is it and why did this happen? To repent of that. And here we have people, rather than lamenting the loss of their fellow human beings and these stories, they're bickering and entering into arguments, using these tragedies as measuring sticks. Who was on the right side? Who was on the wrong side? And they're missing the point. The problem with that is, of course, that we turn that finger of judgment on ourselves, as I've said. We believe that God is coming after us rather than a God who's actually for us. That is the tragedy, that we would believe that God is a God who's coming after us rather than a God of love and compassion and life and healing and hope who's for us, who's always for us. A God of resurrection, a God of resurrection that begins here and begins now. What on earth does any of that background have to do with a fig tree and a vineyard? <laughs> Apparently, some vineyards have problems with birds, they come and peck the grapes. So, if you plant fig trees, the birds prefer the figs because they're tastier and have seeds in them and go further. Therefore, you actually protect the grapes. A little bit like a scarecrow sort of thing. That explains why there's a fig tree in a vineyard to begin with, because I always wondered what that was all about. Here's the question I want to ask again this morning. How and where can you find yourself in this parable that we're about to jump into now? Locate yourself. Jesus means he's talking about a fig tree and he's talking about bearing fruits and we've been talking about disasters and catastrophes and who's to blame. And but let's remember when Jesus is speaking about in this parable, we could think of bearing fruit as a personal value, but I think Jesus is thinking a little bit more systemically here because when catastrophes and disasters, because this follows, this parable follows directly after he's been addressing the headlines of the day and who's right and who's wrong. And he says, no, repent. And then he tells the parable. And I think in his mind, he's thinking, the most vulnerable in society are the ones who suffer the most when there's no fruit on the tree, when society is like this. I think that's what Jesus has in mind. And so you have this parable. 
And the fruit perhaps resembles a society that protects and serves the most vulnerable. So here we have three characters in this vineyard. We have the vineyard owner, possibly representing God, you could say, or their view of God as a a foot-tapping, impatient, and demanding vineyard owner. Then you have the tree, which represents humanity. It's not bearing any fruit. It's going its own way. And then you have the gardener, who represents Christ himself, the gardener who comes along to fertilize and to cultivate the tree. And that's one way, a traditional way of thinking about this parable, and it's a really great way to think about the parable. But parables are always flexible and can work on us in different ways. And so I want to ask you again, where do you find yourself in that parable? Are you the vineyard owner? Are you the tree? Or perhaps you could even see yourself in the role of the gardener. Here's where I see myself. I see myself as the tree and as the vineyard owner. I see myself as a person who's tried to be productive, especially over the past two years during COVID, tried to bear some fruit, tried to grow and be productive, but the truth is it's been hard and there's not much fruit on the tree not necessarily improving or bearing fruit in the way that you would want, not necessarily seeing the change that you would want to see, struggling to produce in a world that demands us to produce, unable to keep pace on our lives, maybe that's how you find yourself today, unable to keep up with the pace of life, to bear all the fruit that needs to be born, the demands of life, to juggle the circumstances of family life or church life in the midst of a pandemic and grow personally, eat healthily, pray faithfully, exercise consistently, be completely full of life. And yet the last two years, maybe some of you today feel like you're withered or you're not bearing that much fruit or you're exhausted. I also can see myself as the vineyard owner, which is not... God is revealed in Christ, but this angry and impatient owner, maybe I'm impatient with myself, angry with myself, impatient with others, maybe judgmental of my efforts or even judgmental of other people's efforts. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. You find yourself frustrated by other people, by how they're navigating all of this or what they've been doing or their lack of efforts when you've been giving it or whatever. So I see myself as the unproductive tree and the impatient owner. And that gets under my skin, just like a parable, I guess, should. And it should break our hearts, it should break my heart. But that's what a parable does. Because I want to blame someone else. I want to scapegoat and defend my own anxieties and fears. I don't want to repent, follow the way of Christ. What I need And what you might need this morning is a gardener. A gardener like Christ who comes to cultivate. Maybe you need someone to believe in you. Maybe you need someone to lead you forward out of this. Maybe you need someone to put some fertilizer on the base of the tree to bring nutrition. I need a gardener that will say, as the verse says, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it 
and put manure on it and cultivate it and fertilize it. It's really interesting that the phrase, let it alone, it's the same phrase that Jesus uses on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them. Let it alone. It's an interesting phrase, let it alone. It's just all grace. It's all grace from the gardener. Let it alone. Let me come and tend to it. Let me come and fertilize it and nurture it for one more year. One more year for the garden to grow. One more year to fertilize and prune and cultivate. Maybe one more year for us to come together to try to bear fruit in our personal lives or even as a community here. To try to bear the fruit of the gardener, bear the fruit of Jesus, bear the fruit of the kingdom. Here's the news. We are designed to bear fruit. So what kind of fruit is God calling you to bear in your life? What's the kind of fruit that God's calling you to bear in this coming year? As you're cultivated and as you're nurtured by the gardener, what might the fruit be? As Jesus tends to the garden of your soul, the withered, not bearing the fruit that we want to, wrapped up in judgment, pointing the finger. Or what kind of fruit is God calling us to bear in this community here in Redeemer Central? Might we let the gardener cultivate and nurture and fertilize and prune and have some hard times and walk through those prunings and hope and trust for new life to give birth? What's the fruit that we might see birthed here? One more year, let it alone one more year. What a great way of thinking, especially as I apply it to life where we're at today, coming out of a pandemic. One more year, one more year for us to, to use our privilege, to use our gifts, to use our power. One more year to root ourselves in the truth that we are the beloved of God. One more year to forgive ourselves. One more year to forgive someone else. One more year to leave our mistakes behind. One more year to lay down our judgments of others, to not point the finger. One more year to work on gratitude. One more year to know ourselves, to learn our stories, to learn the story God might want to write in our lives in this moment. One more year for us to gather together around the table of grace, to feast on the richness of God's grace. One more year to learn how to be the beloved community. One more year to let the gardener come and cultivate something here that we might bear fruit. I believe Jesus might be saying to us, let it alone one more year as he yearns to come and nurture and cultivate and fertilize and care for this tree in our midst. I've gone on long enough. And I'd love us to talk about this. <laughs> Why do we talk about this? It's a great way to have fellowship. It's a great way to gather and meet one another. It's a great way to let the word actually get under our skin, kick these ideas around. And so that's why we do it. We're going to do it again. We've been doing it since, I think, August. Um, and so I'd love you to get into your grips. I'm going to come back after discussion.
Um, we're going to have communion together.